This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. special patrons-only edition of the Reader's Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I'm Soren Rearguard. I'm Carl Bookmarks. We're here today talking about um, a little bit of extra bonus content for you from part two of the Brothers Karamazov, the special secret knowledge that we've, we've <laughs> gleaned for you. Uh, in particular, these two chapters from the middle of part two, that comprise a conversation between Ivan Karamazov, the middle brother, and Alyosha, the younger brother. They're sitting in a restaurant. It's very my dinner with Andre. What they're talking about is Ivan is sort of laying forth some of his ideas of basically the problem of evil in the world and what that might imply about the existence of God if God does exist. He raises some very thorny issues. This section has become very justifiably famous in the Brothers Karamazov. As we talked about in episode one, one of the things that Dostoevsky does very well is to give voice to opinions that he does not agree with or is in some sense finds incomplete. And certainly I think we can say that that's true of Ivan, the, the objections that Ivan raises here. In some ways, those objections even get answered at the end of part two with, with Father Zhojima. We talked about quite a bit about that in our regular episode two, um, which you should also listen to. But before he gets there, he lets Ivan have his say, and he does it in a very, again in a very fair way and a very compelling way. Um, it's a it's a self spiteful way too. You get you get the yeah. sense that Dostoevsky, as a person who had to earn money, is similar to him as a writer, where he gets himself into a huge debt early on in the novel by writing himself into this corner where, okay, he's just loaded up, he's teed up a bunch of extremely persuasive arguments against the position he wants people to come out with at the end of the book and so before we're halfway through the book we're totally in debt trying to work our way out of it and get to the ending the resolution that he wants so yeah. you, you got to kind of love that in a writer taking that big of a risk in a book so we won't waste too much time here uh, talking about the plot because there isn't really plot in this section it's just the two brothers talking Ivan comes up with a bunch of examples. He kind of talks Alyosha through. Alyosha doesn't really even do much in this section. He's just there listening, being sort of passive for once in his life. Just he's received. got some good comebacks, though. He does he's have got... some very good. He got, he's got some good zingers coming back um, at certain points, so we can talk about those. So let's just dive in and, and um, see what we make of this section and think about the, in the big picture, eventually, maybe after we've talked about the, the individual things that are going on, thinking about the big picture of where this fits in the book and why Dostoevsky is, is sort of allowing this counterposition to be so fruitfully developed. Just very briefly, the two, the two chapters, the first one is called Rebellion, where, as Carl hinted at in the main section of episode two, this is where uh, Ivan narrows in on the case of child abuse as being this essentially a refutation of the goodness of the world. 
again, as Carl points out, it's not so much that he says God can't exist because child abuse exists, but essentially what kind of world is it that God would have created that would allow child abuse like this? And then in um, The Grand Inquisitor, he says, oh, I've got, I've got this little, you know, this little drama for you that I made up, Alyosha. And he launches into a, this story about the Grand Inquisitor at the height of the Inquisition who finds himself with a rather uncomfortable guest who happens to be Jesus Christ. So, returned. The return, return. To the return to the earth. So let's launch into it and, and, and think about everything that Ivan is talking about here. Carl, where do you want to start? If I can start a little bit right before rebellion, there's a really interesting passage that kind of deserves a, a little bit of context where Ivan just sort of puts some of his cards out on the table and says, it is not God that I do not accept, you understand? It is this world of gods created by God, created by God that I do not accept and cannot agree to accept. One of the reasons he can accept it and what makes him a agnostic not an atheist is that he says he has a euclidean mind he says i have a euclidean mind an earthly mind and therefore is not for us to resolve things that are not of this world and what he means here is um since kant there's this idea that something is amiss in euclidean geometry and the the parallel postulate of euclid's axioms it turns out there are conditions under which it doesn't hold if we take infinity to be a tangible mathematical reality. And by this time, the mathematician Georg Cantor, I believe, has made some startling claims about the nature of mathematical infinity. There is, in fact, a demonstrable mathematical infinity that makes sense in the axioms of mathematics. But this means that you can have non-Euclidean geometry, which is a thing, you know, that like makes our cell phones work. So kind of useful. And really presaging this huge shift in the way that you can frame, you know, the entire world or the basis of science, which is perhaps, you know, mathematics, Dostoevsky has Ivan like worried about this because it changes the nature of truth from something that's determined by a human worldview, people in a Euclidean space, to people who have no real truck with human perception and who work on a non-Euclidean plane or space. And if that space is as true as ours, what does that say about our determinations or our ability to grasp the totality of things? It's kind of a proto-postmodernist argument that the, the universal center has been lost here. There's no universal standpoint that he can be sure of. And if mathematics has led to that, crisis, which, you know, by 1900 becomes the Hilbert problems, the crisis in the foundations of mathematics. And you get people like Cantor and Bertrand Russell and Kurt Gödel, all making profound contributions to the foundations of mathematics, but also all of them wondering if they're going insane at the same time in proving it. Ivan really presages this inability to say that a human determined worldview is the whole shebang the whole thing. And for that reason, he becomes agnostic, not atheist. He only has his humble Euclidean view. And from that point, he makes his arguments. So that kind of frames- but He's already, he's already what you're saying is he's already recognizing that there is very possibly something non-Euclidean beyond that, that he can't reckon, seem to reckon with. Yeah, he might just be a vile concoction of man's Euclidean mind 
all of his thoughts and, and these two chapters we're going to dive into themselves are framed in this way. And so that's perhaps some of the way that Dostoevsky is like keeping the, the exit, the back door open a little bit to get out of some of these arguments. So you mentioned the, the suffering of children and that, that, is, that is Ivan's chief argument against the life and the worldview of Alyosha and, and Zoshima, a life devoted to others and, and serving the servants and love and care and kindness. He's kind of saying, why should I wager my life for that kind of action when it's not just that children suffer all the time, it's that they seem to be created for suffering. And he says, little children have not eaten anything and are not yet guilty of anything. It is impossible that a blameless one should suffer for another, and such a blameless one. So it's interesting that Ivan is depicted as cold, and he's the only Karamazov who seems to not just let go and delve into his baseness and his sensuality. But this is the moment where he really is saying, you guys think I don't feel anything, but I am the one who sees this huge problem with our society and I feel greatly, I've changed my whole worldview. I wager my salvation on the fact that this God you speak of would not allow these children everywhere to suffer so horribly. I want to read a passage and you tell me if you think this sounds somewhat self-indicting on his part. I want to be open to the idea that Ivan, in some sense, has studied his own character, even though he's not a child abuser, he doesn't have any children. Presumably he's not going around flogging random children, but there's this passage where he's describing the action of the person who's beating their own child. And he says this, I know for certain that there are floggers who get more excited with every stroke to the point of sensuality, literal sensuality, more and more progressively with each new stroke. And he goes on to describe the situation where a father beats his daughter until she dies he goes on to say, these same torturers look upon all other examples of humankind, even mildly and benevolently, being educated and humane Europeans, but they have a great love of torturing children. They even love children in that sense. It is precisely the defenselessness of these creatures that tempts the torturers, the angelic trustfulness of the child who has nowhere to turn and no one to turn to. That is what inflames the vile blood of the torturer. There is, of course, a beast hidden in every man, a beast of rage, a beast of sensual inflammability at the cries of the tormented victim, an unrestrained beast let off the chain, a beast of diseases acquired in debauchery. To me, that sounds like Ivan grappling with his own Karamazovness. When he says, I know for certain there are people who find it sensual to be involved in whipping, Right, not to get too psychosexual about that, right? But it, but it sounds like he he has per, some sort of personal experience with that temptation, with the temptation of what what Augustine would call the libido dominandis, the desire to dominate over others, because that's what seems to be at the heart of his understanding of what's going on here, right? It's the very innocence of the person, the helplessness of the, the child, that incites the sensualness of this for the, for the person who's doing the beating. For me, he just elevates this act and Dostoevsky himself was like, would peruse the newspaper for these most hideous crimes, you know, in the, in the same way that Marx would look for like 
child labor abuse examples that really ought to gall a newspaper reader. He asked Alyosha, can you understand why this nonsense is needed and created? The whole world of knowledge is not worth the tears of that little child to dear God. And then this is one of Alyosha's great rejoinder. He's, he says, oh, I'm tormenting you. Uh, you, don't look, you don't look good. I'll stop if you want. Alyosha says, never mind. I want to suffer too. The fact that there remains in our world child sex trafficking, it's something so awful that it immediately asks if one of the attributes of God is omnibenevolence. How does that fit into a picture of omnibenevolence? Harold Bloom is racked by this question as well. And for him, he sides with Ivan. And he says, you know, even if there were one less case of horribly debilitating disease or schizophrenia or rape in the, the history of the earth, how is it necessary that every single case had to have happened? And I think this helps us understand like what is great literature. And you know, as we begin this podcast, Milton set out to write Paradise Lost, right? To justify the ways of God to man. And that's part of what storytelling is, right? It's a theodicy, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y, justifying the ways of God to man, or perhaps an atheodicy, a way in which human life is made justifiable in its present state or in a potentially different state than the one we're in now. And Dostoevsky cuts to the quick. He wants an answer to that question, and he's put it in the most extreme form that you can think of. Just thinking formally, um, one of the, I think, the biggest thrusts of Ivan's argument is that this is irreconcilable. These two things are not reconcilable, and so you're left with this really big struggle inside of the person. And we can think about that maybe, you know, I'm drawing two pat of uh, parallels, right? We can think about that in, in the form of a novel itself. There's a striving, certainly in 19th century realism, in some ways, and again, this is an oversimplification, and there are certainly exceptions, but there's a striving always for reconciliation by plot's end, a reconciliation of the events of the novel. And one of the things that Dostoevsky seems to be doing and breaking with in realism is preserving a sense of irreconcilability, a, thing, a sense that things don't, aren't necessarily going to fit together. And that's why you have these very wildly jagged books like he has. He's certainly not the only one who's doing it in the 19th century, but he's doing it probably the most dramatically and noticeably. You can't necessarily fit all the parts of the book together and make some grand system out of them. There's going to be yeah. a jaggedness that's left over. I love that. Yeah, it's what makes him sort of, you know, proto-modernist, post-modernist, whatever, the trend towards more fragmentary aspects or styles, forms of, of novels. But yeah, and I think what aligns Ivan, like I was saying, with these people interested in theodicy. So like I said, for Harold Bloom, it's like schizophrenia or something is, is too awful. And in Candide, for Voltaire, it's the great earthquake. How could that mass suffering be allowed? For Ivan, it's child abuse. And one of the reasons Darwin sort of turns away from God is, is not because he thought pure evolutionary theory rejected it. But at least in one letter, he, he talks about the jewel wasp, which is this bug that doesn't kill its host. It like puts a chemical into its brain or central nervous system or the bug equivalent of it. Clearly, I'm not a biologist. And 
controls it um, rather than kills it. And in this kind of insect level, like serious torture. And I think what aligns all of those people's problems with the theodicy from, you know, Darwin, Ivan, Voltaire, or Bloom or whatever, is this idea of torture of the innocent. If something is seemingly innocent and it's being tortured, it kind of seems like the worst things are permitted to the best people or to get to, you know, the cliche, why do bad things happen to good people? That's the perennial theme. And like I said, Dostoevsky sets himself out with a huge debt and he's going to try and pay it off by the end of the book. I really like these examples that you bring up, Carl, particularly of Candide and then of Darwin, because the narrative thrust of Candide is against the idea of a world that's perfectly harmonized or balanced. And, and certainly in the case of the Darwin, of, of the, uh, the jewel wasp, you have what seems to be an, an affront against the sense of the harmony of the world. It's not even just that, right, animals kill each other for food. That's maybe understandable. But this, what seems like this wanton sense of cruelty in nature seems incommensurable. And Ivan himself seems very concerned with the idea of harmony and the possibility of that, but him rejecting the possibility of harmony, of a reconciliation of these things. He says, I don't want harmony. For love of mankind, I don't want it. I want to remain with unrequited suffering. I'd rather remain with my unrequited suffering and my unquenched indignation, even if I am wrong. That really strikes me that he does not think that it is possible, at least for him to hold together these things that he sees as incommensurable. And so he doesn't want an answer that's going to harmonize those things. And he says, even if I'm wrong about it, even if there is a way to harmonize these things, I don't want it because it's just too much. He's sort of making an emotional wager there, I think is part of what you're saying. Should we move on and talk about the Grand Inquisitor? Yeah, the official story, though he calls it a poem. Yeah, which is fascinating because it's a prosy poem. In the Grand Inquisitor, we have the scene being set. We're at the height of the Inquisition in Spain. There's the Inquisitor, right? He's just put some people to death. And he comes across this figure and he seems to recognize who the figure is and he ends up arresting the figure. And then he comes to him and they talk together. Really the grand inquisitor talks to him and he doesn't say much, which again is a sort of interesting parallel to the section here where Ivan is talking a bunch and Alyosha is not really talking back. He's bearing it silently for the most part, apart from, a few good zingers um, back at him. But as it turns out, right, this person is Jesus, right? It's Jesus returned to earth. And the Grand Inquisitor knows who he is and, and says, I can't let you destroy religion as we have made it. I know you stand against what we stand for, but I can't let you destroy that. What in the world is going on here, Carl? It's also a sort of retelling of the temptation of yes. Christ by Satan. And the Inquisitor sort of tells Christ that this is what's happening. He's tempting him and he's one here on earth. It's his playground now. And those three temptations are too much to ask of the average person. And so people will now forego the answers that Jesus gave and they will not follow them because they can't. And yeah. history has proven him right and Jesus wrong, except a tenth of the population or less, the majority of people will not choose freedom 
in the way that the inquisitor defines it. And it's a fascinating insight into one of the problems of Christianity as it's lived in the world over the 1800 years from Christ until Dostoevsky, and then certainly continuing into our day, 200 years later, 150 years later, which is that in a very real sense, the Grand Inquisitor seems to be correct about this. The, the demands of Jesus, if they're taken even not just literally, but, but seriously, seem to be beyond and antithetical to what we might call normal life. And so only a very small percentage, this sort of spiritual elite, are able to achieve this. And everybody else is sort of stuck in this no man's land. And Catholicism, you know, has always sort of managed this problem. And of course, Dostoevsky is very critical of Catholicism in some ways, especially in the character of the Inquisitor. But there is a sense in which, not always through Inquisitions, but even in some very effective and good ways, Catholicism has always sort of managed this problem by conceding it, essentially, and saying, yes, not everybody is going to be a monk or a priest or a nun. We're always going to have people who are living in the world and not even, you know, you have people who live in the world who can still lead holy lives, but then you, you have most people who are just going to live in the world and only going to have some small connection to the importance of the religion that's around them. That's rubbed certain people the wrong way, at least, right? Is that if Jesus's demands are real, then shouldn't we demand that everybody live up to those or not find some sort of halfway home there? Catholicism has always tried to manage those by essentially saying, look, for the people who are really compelled, here are the pathways for that. And the other people, let's try to manage the behavior as best we can and have a sort of a spiritual economy where the rich give to the poor and the, the, the benefits are going to then trickle down to the people who just can't hack it. Yeah, he puts it in a, in a scientific context as well. Uh, he says, the Inquisitor, no science will give them bread as long as they remain free. But in the end, they will lay their freedom at our feet and say to us, better that you enslave us, but feed us. Scientifically too, you know, people don't want to you know, invent the wheel for themselves. They want it invented for them. And that's the price you pay for not choosing freedom in this sort of ultimate dichotomy that this parable of Ivan's, you know, brings up. This is where I insert a pithy comment about social media. Trading freedom for slavery and bread. <laughs> yeah, and you can really feel like Sartre's existentialism here because he's very, he's where that quote comes from. It's not the Brothers Karamazov, that if God is dead, everything is permitted. At least I think so. I really hope I'm not wrong about all these things I'm referencing today. If I am, you can email us and tell me how stupid I am. That's totally fine. If there are any jeweled wasp experts out there. Yeah, who are I, pro- I was probably right, wrong please. about the thing, the specific bug. Yeah, that's okay. I embraced my suffering in your comments and your emails. We um, also embrace ignorance here. <laughs> the, 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 the limits of our youth. We are not experts. But this idea that people are forever incapable of being free which is, you know, this starts idea that people hate to choose freedom and they will do anything they can to deny that, in fact, they always have a choice. And that's, you know, where his famous The Wall, I think, short story comes from. Even if you're up against the firing squad, you have choices to make that are free about how to feel about it at the very least. And that's what lends the, the, to me, lends the Grand Inquisitor's situation a certain amount of pathos because 
he understands that that is the situation that people are always going to not want to be free if they can avoid it. And he's saying he's offering essentially a, a great temptation, which is give your freedom to us and we will bear the cost of that freedom. We, the elite, this 10% who can hack it, will bear the cost of your freedom for you. And we will give you the rules. We will give you the things to follow that you have to do. And you won't know true freedom, but you're not going to know the difference. And we're going to spare you a lot of bad vibes along the way by doing that. And so, right, he really does think that he is doing the benevolent thing by managing people. Oh, absolutely. And you get the spite at himself of Ivan as he's telling this story. It's like we're in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein here. What, how many frames are we in right now? <laughs> so we're in Ivan's story being told to Alyosha ultimately in Dostoevsky's book. And the brothers too are, are both Karamazovs. They're both part of this baseness of sensual human life. It seems like there's a bit of like, almost like a logical argument here that's baseness is greater than, in brackets, the happiness that is greater than freedom. And I think that's a sort of important way to suss out the, the framing that's going on here. These brothers are linked by a sense of sensualness and they both oppose each other from a mutually held ground of acceptance of life in some way. And it's part of Dostoevsky's point is that this deepest rejection of life and the ability for there to be a non-absurd meaning to life or a true theodicy, as Ivan knows, and this is part of why this story is about his own spite at himself, he still chooses to live out his days. Uh, and he makes remarks about how, you know, in spite of these things, I will, I will live until at least 30. Yeah. And then who can say, perhaps, you know, he will do himself in. But for the time being, he's not even persuaded by his own argument. Do you think that there's a sense of contradiction or at least tension between these two chapters? Because in the rebellion chapter, Ivan really seems to be suggesting like, I would trade everything to get rid of this suffering. As much as the Grand Inquisitor is this terrible figure in the, in the chapter, it almost seems like he's lined up with Ivan in that desire, right? The, the aim is to eliminate suffering and the cost of eliminating that suffering is freedom. So there's a sense in which Ivan seems to be identifying himself with the Grand Inquisitor or the temptation of the Grand Inquisitor is his temptation. And I'm thinking about that because in other parts of the book, we see Ivan's tendency toward what we might call social engineering, a desire to set up society in such a way that we can alleviate ills and eliminate, not just alleviate, but eliminate them, right? We talked last time in episode one about his sort of bizarre idea for um, setting up a conjunction between church and state that would then eventually lead to a sort of universal morality or something like that. Like the Inquisitor, he has a sense that, dang it, if we could just get human beings to behave the way we want them to behave, then we could eliminate suffering. And there's this undercurrent of pushback against that, right? Coming, I guess, from the silent figure of Jesus, right? Which is that you, you can't do that because doing that is, is, is in itself a violation of the human. Something you said there too kind of reminds me of you can apply this also to a sort of social acceptance of the status quo. And 
part of what you're saying too is that you know from rebellion to grand inquisitor ivan seems to be saying i've made this condemnation this rebellion against the status quo or the philosophy of life that prevails for most you know societies that he thinks of but if you if you can't truly reject that you're just the grand inquisitor you are completely in league with the things that are happening there's a sort of famous quote i don't know the full of it but like noam chomsky is debating william f buckley about the vietnam war and he talks about chomsky obviously very anti-war but it's terrifying the equanimity that people have to protest movements or to people who want to change things and those people are as in league with the the people whose leadership requires their submissiveness and so you know to just vilify demagogues and and horrible leaders who led people to accept horrible things is a bit unfair to the horrors of the of the everyday person who tacitly acknowledged it so says the the ivan character right and you get a little bit of that ivanness in the in the chomsky the anti-war chomsky at that time too what do you make of the very end of this poem ivan is talking about how the poem ends Alyosha asks him how does it end and ivan says this i was going to end it like this when the inquisitor fell silent he waited some time for his prisoner to reply his silence weighed on him he had seen how the captive listened to him all the while intently and calmly looking him straight in the eye and apparently not wishing to contradict anything the old man would have liked to say something even something bitter terrible but suddenly he approaches the old man in silence and gently kisses him on his bloodless 90 year old lips that is the whole answer the old man shudders something stirs at the corners of his mouth he walks to the door opens it and says to him Go and do not come again. Do not come at all. Never, never. The prisoner goes away. And then Alyosha says, And the old man? Ivan says, The kiss burns in his heart, but the old man holds to his former idea. And you with him, Alyosha exclaimed ruefully. Ivan laughed. And then, of course, that leads at, at the end of this chapter to Alyosha's greatest comeback, which is Ivan's trying to basically tempt him to join him in this, right? And, and his, Alyosha's answer is this. Alyosha stood up, went over to him in silence and gently kissed him on the lips. And I says, literary theft. Uh, you stole that from my poem, which is a great, this is a, this great ending. Alyosha has found the perfect comeback to all of this long-windedness from Ivan. What do you make of that ending though? What, what are the, there's clearly some layers there of meaning. What are you, what are you getting out of it? The rebuke to all rebuke is love is kind of like the Dostoevskian motif here. Very out of vogue opinion nowadays, right? But certainly that's part of it, that the most, you know, to win a war is to deny the efficacy of war, not to retaliate. There's something in that mindset in Jesus and Alyosha in this end of this section. It brings, of course, to mind the kiss of Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he betrays Jesus. But here it's Jesus is the one who's giving the kiss to the man who's betrayed him, to the man who's right, supposed to be a representative of his church on earth and has instead taken the message and twisted it. And then, of course, Alyosha steals that and gives it back to Ivan. It's like the Borges story about Judas as the like fulcrum of all metaphysics, were it not for him to have been ordained to have betrayed 
it would evolve in for not. I think part of what the kiss sort of represents too is this, as I said in the other cast about this part, there's this idea of these powers of miracle, mystery, and authority, which are three powers and the only three powers on earth capable of conquering and holding captive forever the conscience of these feeble rebels. And part of what those things lead to or what they're described as is the cause of universal worship. And so we get this passage, the mystery of man's being is not only in living, but in what one lives for. Without a firm idea of what he lives for, man will not consent to live and will sooner destroy himself than remain on earth, even if there is bread all around him. This is part of what the answer is for a theodicy or an atheodicy in this section and in this book and sort of in Dostoevsky's worldview. Whatever human beings are up to, if they're going to have meaning, there has to be some element of worship in life. So even though people crave this Jesusian or Christian freedom, this existential freedom, they themselves have to come up with something to worship. That's inextricable from what your freedom is, this essential mystery of human nature. If it is merely a sort of received anti-existential dogma or doctrine, it fails. And so one has to sort of act on one's own best Joshima philosophy of love, of fallibility, mm-hmm. if, you're going to, if you're going to get out of this trap. And that, that trap of the falling down before idols includes the inquisitor mm-hmm. as well as the, the, the other types of baseness that the other characters live for throughout the novel. Drink, money, women, yeah. like the ability to debase yourself publicly, like a, a kind of self-hate. All of those things are attempts at universal worship. And so you can kind of fold Ivan's ire at child abuse into that a kind of failed worship, perhaps. That's one way to read the rebuke of the kiss as an answer to all of those problems that he raised. It makes me wonder if there was any possibility that Dostoevsky had read Augustine because really that really puts me in the mind of Augustine, the idea of humans at their essence not not being rational or we might say like Euclidean in in our terminology here but being worshiping creatures and the, that worship finding outlets one way or another right and so you know I've just taught through the confessions with some students and thinking about the the ways in which I mean he basically is like all of the, the Karamazovs rolled up into one throughout his, the early part of his life and he does attribute that in some sense, at least, to an improperly channeled sense of worship. And he's very aware of how that leads to a desire to dominate over other people, to grab control. And that's why he's very concerned with things like the theater and the gladiatorial combat. There are spaces that he recognizes as spacious, spaces of worship that then deaden us or, or, or bring out the worst in us. Or I think, I mean, certainly if he hasn't read Augustine, he's, you know, he's read the verse from the Bible, right? Where what is the ideal form of worship for Jesus, right? Is to be like a little child. And I think that is in the background of this answer and of this exchange where Ivan is freaking out about child abuse and Alyosha, the Christian monk, has this answer from Jesus where to worship correctly is to 
be like a little child. The question that he raises um, that you brought up before of why is it that it seems like embedded in how the world has to be that these children are so innocent for Dostoevsky, that's just the only thing that also allows worship to be satisfied. The need for worship to be satisfied is someone's childlikeness. Well, that seems like a pretty good place to end to me. <laughs> yeah, maybe that so makes we'll some wrap sense. It up for now. Yeah. Thank you, our dear devoted patrons. You are our little children in the best sense of the word. We thank you for your support. Tell your friends. Tell them to come unto us like little children. <laughs> if someone denies that one of our patrons, may a millstone be hung around their neck. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. No, we, we're, we're very thankful for your continued support. And yeah, we have thank you. Uh, a lot is... more extra goodies planned for you. We mentioned this at the uh, in, in episode two proper, but we are going to be starting to host a sort of side cast called The Watchers Karamazov, in which we'll be talking about films. Uh, and that, that will be patrons only. So you'll have access to that. And no one else will. And you can rub it in their faces. But for now, we'll let you go. Have a good night or a good morning whenever you're listening to this. And I will toss it over to the cat keyboard to play us out. Oh, those Russians.